Welcome to the first episode of Our Black History, where I, Alexis, do all the research and tell a story about a historical figure to Adam. That's me. All right, let's get started. So this first episode, we're going to be talking about someone who really was a important part um, of the civil rights movement, but his um, contributions have been overshadowed by some personal things. So with that said, today we're going to be talk- talking about Byron Rustin. Have you ever heard of him? No, this is my first time. Okay. It was mine too when I started doing the research. So Byron Rustin was born in 1912 in Westchester, Pennsylvania. So he definitely said Wooder like me. He was a Wooder Billy. Wow. <laughs> he had no relationship with his father and his mom was only 16. She, he actually thought that she was his older sister. But Ew. <laughs> Ew. He was raised by his grandparents, so her parents. Um, and they were Quaker. And this upbringing really had a lot of influence. Wait, we're on- not going to sit there and try to just slide past that. He's a what? Quaker. What's a Quaker? A Quaker was a sect of a religion, Christianity, that really came about in the Pennsylvania area. Quakers were peaceful people. And that really is going to lend itself to the rest of Byard's life and the decisions that um, he makes. Oh, okay. I was getting ready to make all kinds of oatmeal jokes. I don't know if that's related or not, but probably. Quaker oatmeal, probably. That guy looks very peaceful on the box. Well, he I looks like what I picture Quaker people to look like. So, Anyway, <laughs> um, so he actually, like I said, was raised by his grandparents, and they had a catering business. Um, so they actually had a lot, decent amount of money, and he grew up in a really large house. His grandmother, Julia, was active in the NAACP, and people like W.E.B. Dubois and James Weldon Johnson were around the house a lot, so he grew up around some really strong figures in black history. He knew very early on that he was gay, and he told his... Okay. Yeah, and he told... I thought this was interesting, because you know, given the time, and when he told his grandmother, she said what I think is hilarious. She said, I suppose that's what you need to do. Which, I don't know, I wasn't expecting that response. She's so sweet. Yeah, I mean, she's Quaker. I think this is just the way they respond to things. I don't know. Um, And he is known um, throughout his life for how open he was about his sexuality, which obviously was not the norm at the time, especially for a black man. And is often noted as one of the reasons why he isn't so well known in the um, civil rights movement or post-civil rights movement. Yeah, I don't remember reading about him through the African American History Museum. Honestly, he probably was in there, though. We just didn't pay attention because it's not like someone you hear about all the time. True. Um, but anyway, so growing up, he was interested in writing and playing football. He actually staged his first known sit-in at the cafe, which served his white teammates, but not him. So. Oh, so this is around like Martin Luther King times. Not what we're talking about. A little bit prior. Not at this time in his life. Right, no. But eventually. His era. Yes. Yeah, so like I said, he was born in 1912. So this sit-in, his first sit-in was probably like 1930. Gotcha. Okay. So in 1932, he attended Wilberforce College on a musical scholarship. He actually had a really good singing voice. He was a tenor. Um, And that was in HBCU um, in Ohio. And he was a member of Omega Sci-Fi also known as the Q-Dogs, so wow. kind of cool. <laughs> the, if you don't know, um, that fraternity was founded in 1911 at Howard University, and they have many notable members such as Langston Hughes, Jesse Jackson, Shaquille O'Neal, and Stephen A. Smith. 
And one really hard jumping dance. Yes. <laughs> then he was expelled from Wilberforce in 1936, so four years later, after organizing a strike on campus. And he went on to complete activist training through the American Friends Service Committee. The AFSC is a Quaker-founded um, anti-violence organization. They were so against violence, they refused to serve in the military and protested when drafted, often serving jail time for that. Oh. In 1937, he moved to Harlem, and he became involved in freeing the Scottboro Boys. These were a group of men ages 13 to 20 from Alabama. They were accused of raping two white women. Basically, there was like a train and in one of the train cars, there was black people. Another one, there was white people. And then there was like some type of commotion. And when um, the train stopped, the police arrested all the black kids and then these two white women. And to get out of being arrested, the white women claimed... Shocking. Yeah, that uh, they were raped it. by these men. Um, and so basically they, uh, sorry. So basically from there, a lot of people were involved over a long period of time trying to free these young men. Um, it took about 10 years. Some of them got out from escaping, others through court. Um, but it was a really long thing and obviously not the first or last time that false accusations were brought against black men. So after that, he kind of hopped around different organizations, including the Young Communist League. He was actually really... He was a commie? Yes. So at this time, believe it or not, um, the Communist Party um, in the Soviet Union was really invested in the fair treatment of African Americans. I feel like this was kind of strategic in the sense... Wait, so it was commie for the black man? temporarily i think it was strategic to try to like get them on their side and just you know force a communist um agenda i don't know but that's anyway as soon as world war ii started they stopped caring about black people they're like now we got other things to worry about um and so rustin kind of saw that side of them and he moved on to the socialist party and he started working with a philip randolph who's a well-known figure in the labor and civil rights movements in 19- this is a really interesting pre-World War II black civil rights story. Yeah, I, that's what I also liked about learning this is, like, you normally just hear about what happens, like, in the 1960s. Yeah. But it's cool seeing how he became this way. Okay, so... So, in 1941, cool. um, A. Philip Randolph and Bayard, they, along with A.J. Must, uh, organized a march on Washington to protest segregation in the armed forces. Randolph actually met with President Roosevelt, and he helped write the terms of the Fair Employment Act, which banned discrimination in defense industries and federal agencies. So after he did this, Randolph was kind of like, okay, I'm cool. Like, that was enough. Like, I got to, like, help write this. But Rustin was, like, super gung-ho about the march. And so they kind of had a little falling out, and Rustin actually held a press conference to like basically share his difference of opinion from Randolph, which later he regretted doing. But at the time, he was like fired up. He wanted to do the march. <laughs> he sent out a nasty tweet. Basically, <laughs> at that time, he was like, "This guy's crazy. a hater. He's trying to stop That's my crazy. march." So after that, you know, it kind of split off from Randolph. He traveled to California to protest the Japanese internment camps. Um, he, like I said, he was really influenced by his Quaker roots, so he despised all kinds of injustice. I was going to say, my man is all over the place. I honestly like, think that's... Are you being treated bad? If so, 
<laughs> Call 1-800-RUSTIN. Yeah, yeah. The Quakers come quick. That's one thing I saw, and I, one of the reasons like I think also maybe he wasn't so celebrated was because he wasn't just about black freedom. Like, he actually didn't even really care for the Black Panther Party. He wanted really? all freedom. Yeah, he would fight for anybody. Because you have to remember he was also gay. So, like, right. I, I don't know if that helped him see it from a different lens or what. But anyway... So, um, from there, he was started being known for being a pioneer in desegregating interstate bus travel. He was arrested for sitting in the second row of a bus, and this experience also opened his eyes to hiding his homosexuality. He basically saying, like, if he were to do so, he's an active part of the prejudice against the gay community as well, um, which caused him to be more out about who he was as a person. Like, he felt like by hiding his sexuality, he was giving in to... The prejudice. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So my man was like, you know what? That's it. Feet in the street. I think he was already feet in the street, but it just kind of like motivated him. Um, like everyone knew. Like from all the stuff I was reading, like everyone knew he was gay. A lot of people wanted to hide that about him, but it, he never hid it about himself. And yeah. I think maybe he was just more vocal uh, after this experience. So you just know there was a couple of meetings, and he showed up late. And he, as soon as he walked in, everybody was like, oh, here this dude go. Yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> so through this work uh, with the interstate bus travel, um, he met George Hauser, a Methodist minister. This guy was white. And... Um, he founded CORE, Congress of Racial Equality, which is a pacifist organization based on the teachings of Gandhi. Together, Rustin and Hauser created the Freedom Rides, which most people are, you know, you've heard that term before. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, these rides challenged the 1946 Supreme Court ruling of Morgan v. Virginia, which stated that racism in interstate travel was unconstitutional. So basically... I didn't know this was the reason of the Freedom Rides. So this was cool to learn, and maybe I'm dumb. Like I said, I went to private school. We they didn't teach us. We basically <laughs> weren't learning CRT where I was from. We they weren't teaching us anything at public school either. So basically, the whole point of the Freedom Ride was once the Supreme Court said that racism in interstate travel was unconstitutional, it basically ruled a bunch of Jim Crow laws in the South unconstitutional. So by riding these buses, um, they organized 14 men divided by race. So it would be like seven black men, seven white men. Um, and they would ride together on these buses, which in the South was illegal, but the law is unconstitutional. So that was the whole point of the freedom ride to like challenge that. Oh, <laughs> that's what the freedom rides were. Yes. Because technically they couldn't, they couldn't exercise these Jim Crow laws because the Supreme court federally said that it was unconstitutional. So that's why they were challenging it and kind of like causing a ruckus and trying to like, draw more attention to it. So um, Rustin participated in these rides. He actually served 22 days on a chain gang in North Carolina after one of these arrests. And he ended up publishing several, several reports about this experience, which led to reform of like prison gangs as a whole. So he's just, you know, going all over the country, making change like he really has done a lot. So he wanted to continue to learn nonviolent ways of protest. So in 1948, he traveled to India and actually studied under Gandhi and Gandhi's teachings. Wait, he studied under Gandhi? Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not sure if this is like 
100% factual, but I could have sworn Gandhi wasn't messing with black folk like that. I mean, I don't know. This That's what Rustin did, so... Maybe he was famous or more popular enough that Gandhi was really Yeah, I could have sworn here and now. Again, I might be wrong because, again, public school ain't teach us a goddamn thing. But I'm pretty sure Gandhi did not like black folk. I don't know anything about that, but it's definitely possible. Mm -hmm. Um, Crazy. So after that, um, he spent the next four years advocating for rights in African countries, as such as Ghana and Nigeria. My man said all around the world, and I, like I said, yeah, he was all about injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. That was like his motto. In 1953, he was arrested for having sexual activity with two men in a parked car in Pasadena. Oh, the pokey roller? <laughs> yeah, and Ooh. this led to him having a fallout with Must, and he stepped down from the Fellowship of Reconciliation. And actually, his conviction for this act was pardoned in 2020 by Gavin Newsom, the current governor really? of California. Yeah, He actually has a lot of posthumous pardons, which is kind of interesting. I'm sure. <laughs> so <They were> looking <laughs> back and was like, hey, we, we kind of did this dude kind of yeah, wrong. Yeah, he actually had like a lot of those, but which was kind of interesting. But I thought that was cool that this happened pretty recently. Um, in 1956, he began advising Martin Luther King Jr. on pacifism and nonviolent activism, especially through the bus boycotts in Alabama. Together, they created the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, or the SCLC. Um, the what? SCLC. Gotcha. Southern Christian you Leadership started Conference. Started sounding like... Do you want to get pot? I sure do. <laughs> well, I'm nonviolent now. I'm uh, learning the Quaker oh, teachings. Oh, you Quaker. Um, you don't eat oatmeal. So, a lot of activists, though, surrounding King were hesitant. They didn't want Martin Luther King Jr. to be associated with Rustin because of his sexual orientation. So, okay. this is where you kind of see. Right. And especially after he had that, con- that uh, conviction. For like, so then it was like you couldn't even hide it anymore. Like my man's got a record <laughs> for uh, tickling the pickle, so <laughs> they couldn't really hide it. And actually, <laughs> Adam Clayton Powell Jr. he threatened to spread rumors that King was in a sexual relationship with Rustin oh. if he didn't stop breaking with him. I had a dream. Isn't that crazy? Uh-oh. But Rustin was like, okay, whatever. He never wavered from who he was and right. never regretted being out. Right. When he said, what's the big deal? Yeah. I tickle pickle. <laughs> he, just, <laughs> he just didn't care. He's always been truly himself. Get it? Deal. Yeah, I got it. Um, so then when King wanted to plan a march on Washington for jobs and freedom... Randolph, remember the old guy that yes. yeah, he had the press conference? Randolph was like, Why well, know who's got a boner for marches? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Randolph said, Rustin's your guy. Like, he's always wanted to do this. Like, this is his chance. Um, so, put me in, coach. Exactly. But Rustin actually had to serve as Randolph's deputy, like, on paper, because they didn't want him too associated with the march right. because of his gayness. Right. Yeah. Um, they were like, you're a consultant. They thought it would, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> they thought it would overshadow the march, basically. But on September 6, 1963, a photograph of Rustin and Randolph actually appeared on the cover of Life magazine, identifying them as leaders of the march, which was nice. So he did get kind of his just due. Um, and we'll share this picture on our social media so you can see it. Because I don't know, it kind of felt heartwarming for me because 
every (laughs) i don't know like you like researching him and just him being himself and he was such a big part the fact that he did get that recognition i'm like okay good like he didn't have to like really be behind the scenes right he got his his apology letter if you would i mean the cover of life magazine seems like a big deal back then so he continued to organize marches and boycotts everywhere and after the civil rights act was passed he got more interested in politics although he helped draft much of king's memoir it's called the stride towards freedom he didn't want his name to be credited in the book again he didn't want king to be like negatively impacted by his involvement so he didn't have his name in the book um when he started getting in politics he paid attention to the democratic party and i thought this was interesting because it's basically what the democrats the whole thing is it's what they do he thought that they should align their ideals with civil rights and workers rights in order to gain votes for minorities and poor whites um this is where his stance on civil rights started to splinter off from many of the of the time he did not like the term black power he specifically felt that the Democratic Party would should align their ideals with civil rights and workers' rights in order to gain votes from minorities and poor whites, which is exactly what they try to do right. now. Except a, lot of, except a lot of times poor whites are distracted by racism, which, you know, causes them to shoot themselves in the foot. But that's an argument for another time. Um, but this is where his stance on civil rights started to splinter off from others of the day. He did not like the term black power. Oh. And he actually did not like affirmative action. So he's Terry Crew. I wouldn't go that no. far, but he just, like I said, he was all about equality for everyone everywhere. He was Except afraid, I think, y'all. He was, I think he was afraid that blacks would become elitist and would end up like, I don't know. Like, I think that he just wanted everyone to be equal and he was afraid by using the term black power. It was saying like, we're better right, than okay. which like, I, I understand, but that's just the way he stood. You know what I mean? Um, So then he started turning his focuses away from civil rights in America and more towards other countries, focusing on anti-communism. Yes, our kid. He is talking. (laughs) He's part of it. Um, Focusing on anti-communism and then the Jewish plight in the Soviet Union. And he wrote a lot of articles about that in the 70s. Mills was all about the Ruskies. Communism um, and writing for them. Like, I mean, well, the Russians were acting up a lot back then. He was then, probably so selling I, I, jeans over there, too, making mad oh money. The no. blue jeans was going for a premium back then. So despite all his activism and comfortability with his, sexual, with his sexuality, he actually didn't start advocating for gay rights until the 80s. And this is when, this is a little sus, but I thought it was interesting. This is when he met his partner, uh, Walter Nagel. They had a 38-year age gap. I'm sorry, how big of an age gap? 38 years. And how um, old was I think Rustin? Nagel was 27. Eesh. And uh, Rustin was 65. The age gap can't be older than one of the two people in the relationship. Nagel was a like a young white man, and I guess oh, actually, there's a really good YouTube video that I found out about it where Nagel talks about Rustin. They sound like they really loved each other, had a great relationship. He really like yeah, idolized power him. To them. I mean, and so much so that because you couldn't get married back then, 
um rustin but really wanted nagel to have some rights to him as far as i mean he's getting older like visiting him in the hospital and all that so rustin actually adopted nagel in 1982 <laughs> wait so he would have rights i think it let's was a run that back real quick <laughs> my boy did what so rustin adopted legally adopted nagel like his parents nagel's parents had to sign over like to rustin even though he was an adult, that's what it said that when I was doing my research. Is but it allowed him to, you know, if he was six, he was in the hospital, or if he when he passed away, to like have, like you know, rights right. to his estate, and estate all that or stuff. whatever. Yeah, uh, uh, mm-hmm. that's interesting in the eyes of the law, but even weirder to read on paper. Yeah, but I I think it was something that a lot many people did at yeah, the time. Yeah, I'm not faulting the them. They, they got to do what they got to do. I know do. I, it was interesting. The age gap definitely yeah, makes it. I mean, wild. it makes it believable too. Like, that's my boy. They're like, hey, he's like 38 years older, and I'm just. I mean, yeah. it could be, but yeah. Um, in 1986, this is probably another reason why. He's kind of fizzled. You don't and hear about him. this is a very interesting time for all of this to be going on. I know. It is so not the it, friendliest <laughs> climate for this gentleman. Not at all. He gave a speech in promotion of New York of a New York gay rights bill called the New N Words Are Gays. Oh. <laughs> Although his he said the full word uh, with the hard R. Oh, great. Today. Blacks are no longer the litmus paper or the barometer of social change. This is what he said. Blacks are in every segment of society, and there are laws that help to protect them from racial discrimination. The new N-words are gays. It is in this sense that gay people are the new barometer for social change. The question of social change should be framed with the most vulnerable group in mind, gay people. So I kind of feel like this is when a lot of black people were like, okay, that's enough. Because, I mean, if we think about 1980s, like the crack epidemic, all that stuff, just say no, the Reagan. Black people definitely were not yeah. and are still not like, free, but he had this mind. And maybe it's because he was so well known. He probably had money. Like, I don't know how else you become this yeah, way. Yeah, my man said it's a. Uh, t- yeah, so I feel like this is another reason why people don't really talk yeah, about him much. How you. My man got to his final chapter and said, It's M. Night Shyamalan's over here. What? I'm what? twisting this. Y'all about to, y'all ain't seen this coming. But to be honest, when I read it, I was more shocked by the title of his speech, not the stance he took. Because if you know right. him, I mean, at you all kind of researching him, this makes yeah, that sense. flag has been flying in the wind this whole time. We kind of see that one coming. Well, especially when he was like, I don't like the Black Panther Party and I don't like Black Power. I mean, like, that was kind of like, I he had a good reason behind that. I could kind of see where the man was going. But then when he got to his speech, it was just like, oh, yeah, forget y'all. <laughs> yeah, he pretty much was acting as if like there was no more oppression for black people. Which is just interesting. Like I said, it's 1986. I feel like there was so much going on. I mean, Rodney King hadn't even happened yet. You just yet. know somebody at an NAACP <laughs> meeting just fell out when they heard that. Well, yeah, I feel like they definitely cut him off. Like, that's why I feel like you don't hear and about down him Down goes Fred. Um, But I do think he's important to talk about. But anyway, he ended up dying a year later of a perforated appendix. Wait, so, so he said all of that and then bought the farm. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that was his last little that shot. Was the, I mean, that's a way to go out right there. You might as well fire <laughs> your biggest cannon on the way out. 
Um, so Rustin's legacy and personal philosophy is a mix of Quaker pacifism with socialism and the theory of nonviolent protest popularized, popularized, my goodness, by Gandhi. Um, as we mentioned, he was polarizing for a lot of people, but I really enjoyed researching him, learning more about him, and I do understand why he's not always brought up. But I did really admire how fearless he was about who he was and just never wavered. I mean, all the way. I mean, the man did not waver in the slightest. He was always himself. Yeah. So that's a hell of an ending, though. Yeah. My man said, I'm going out. Yeah, with his partner by his side. Technically, his offspring by his side. Oh, wow, don't no, say no, that. we're going there. We're going there. Oh my god. Anyway, well, that's it for today's episode. I hope y'all enjoyed it. I sure did. Yeah. That was. I'm not. I'm still trying to, you know, wrap my head around old boy's uh farewell speech. I know it's kind yeah, of fucked up. It's, it's like farting in the elevator before you leave. <laughs> it's like he gave the middle Man. finger.